Welcome to the Scientific Sense podcast, where we explore emerging ideas from science, policy, economics, and technology. My name is Gil Epen. We talk with world's leading academics and experts about their recent research or general areas of topical interest. Scientific Sense is an unstructured conversation with no agenda or preparation. We cover a wide variety of domains where new discoveries are made and new technologies are developed on a daily basis. We are most interested in how new ideas affect society and help educate the world how to pursue a rewarding and enjoyable life rooted in science, logic and information. We seek knowledge without boundaries or constraints and provide unedited content of conversations with researchers and leaders who love what they do a companion blog to this podcast can be found at scientificsense.com and this podcast is available on over a dozen platforms and directly at scientificsense.net if you have suggestions for topics guests and other ideas please send them to info@scientificsense.com and i can be reached at gil@epen.info My guest today is uh, Dr. Marcella Uliano de Silva, who is senior bioinformatician at the Wellcome Sanger Institute. Her research interests are mechanisms of genome evolution, the improvement of genome assembly pipelines, and actions towards uh, inclusion and diversity in science. Welcome, Marcella. Thank you. Good to be yeah. here. Thanks for doing this. So, I want to start with your 2020 paper. Uh, towards complete and error-free genome assemblies of all vertebrate species. You say high-quality and complete reference genome assemblies are fundamental for the application of genomics to biology, disease, and biodiversity con- conservation. However, such assemblies are available only for a few non-microbial species. So, uh, and you say here, to address this issue, the International Genome Consortium has worked over a five-year period to evaluate and develop cost-effective methods for assembling highly accurate and nearly complete reference genomes. Uh, so before you get to the details of this, Marcella, could you talk a little bit about the International Genome Consortium, um, who, who is involved and, you know, wh- how, how that has been organized? Yeah, sure. So, yeah, I think that was the first thing I would say is that it, it is, I mean, I am in this paper, but it's a huge effort for a lot of different scientists in this consortium called the Vertebrate Genomes Project, so which is basically shared by Eric Jarvis from Rockefeller University in New York. So the history behind it is basically that he studies vocal learning, um, and there are a, a few birds that are able to learn and also to create new songs, because a lot of birds, uh, they copy, and they have this specific song from the from generations on and they always sing the same song but a few birds are able to create new songs and pass it on to their offspring so basically what eric does is that he studies the evolution of language in humans the genetics and compares also with birds so he studied this peculiarity in specific birds and then from the first generation of sequencing genomes which was basically sequencing short reads uh, dna 
I can explain exactly uh, or very basically why um, one um, technology causes problem in terms of the other, but just long story short for now, the, the, I can state that short reads cause more problems in assembly. So assembly is the reuniting of all of this DNA to form the chromosomes of a species, right? When you don't know how these chromosomes look like. So he was doing this organization of chromosomes, so this genome assembly for birds, using a technology that uses short DNA sequences. And this is prone to give, give us a lot of errors. Is that if we had a lot of misspellings in the sentences of a book, for example. So as using these uh, genomes, to study these birds with these essential errors, he got really frustrated and he was like, look, we have been trying to improve genomes for a long time. So let's do all of the vertebrates because we really need to have this in very high quality. This so is the, because... Just yeah, one quick so question, uh, Marcella. So um, the short genome sequences, um, so you're doing it in a short, um, uh, short steps because of the technology constraint or there's some other reason why that's the case? Yeah, so basically, since the uh, sequencing of the human genome, which was sequenced with a, a technology developed by the person that my institute is named after, which is Sanger sequencing, um, during the development of the human genome, which is using the Sanger sequencing, which is, uh, we can sequence long stretches of DNA, but in a much less uh, scaled manner. So you would really use like 3,000 scientists to do the first version of the, of the human genome. So during that period, um, lots of companies and, and, and academia were developing new methods to scale up and make the sequencing of uh, DNA much faster. And one of the technologies was basically to sequence shorter read fragments. So you just basically take the, the DNA of a species from a cell you chunk it up in pieces because it's also because you it's very difficult for the scientists in the lab to extract an intact DNA from a cell. So usually it breaks. So, and then you do a little bit of more breaking to get like a uniform distribution of DNA. And then you would put adapters on this like whole genome sequencing, as we say, and you would sequence with these machines that were uh, sequencing shorter fragments. Soon we came to realize that because DNA uh, genomes have a lot of repetitive sequence, and when we try to put the pieces together uh, in, in, a, in a matter that we call de novo, which is just basically like a jigsaw puzzle. So we sequence different portions of DNA redundantly, and they have slight overlaps between them. So basically, if you have a redundant coverage of specific regions, you can put them on the top of the other and then you form a larger consensus. The problem is when you have a repetitive sequence in the DNA, algorithms get very confused and they pile up all of mm. the DNA one on the top of the other. So we basically soon came to realize that short sequences were not very, um, they were very difficult to resolve the repeats. So companies and academia again start developing more and more methods as their machines to sequence as long sequences as we can. Um, so then we have like a larger jigsaw puzzle piece that in the overlaps are less um, prone to error, right? They are more reliable. So this is basically the transition between all these bird genomes and other genomes that Eric and others and I and others have been using in the past. And we, we are fighting systematic errors on these genomes. Even though the, these genomes help us to advance science a lot, 
there was a lot of things uh, we can think as, as like a old photograph film. There was a lot of pictures there that were not showing because the whole film was not assembled, right? So we basically gathered together in this consortium and many others. So, and to, to redo and to make the final reference genomes of this new technology that is in place now. Uh, you were uh, you were talking about is it the zebra finch the the, the bird uh, uh, with, with songs and and so on um, and so what's the connection there uh, between the bird and the human? Oh, well, that, that you would need to talk to Eric <laughs> because <laughs> this, is, this is his uh, side of the speciality. But it was basically so the the fact that he was finding all of these errors in the genome kind of brought him to have the idea of gathering a consortium of scientists to do all of the vertebrates. And I was actually studying the sloth genome. Do you know the sloth? Uh, I never know how to pronounce that very well, but it's the, the hang mammal from South America. And I was studying this, uh, this species uh, in Germany at the time, doing a high quality genome. And then I joined the consortium and we have been working together ever since. Now I, I am in Cambridge working at the Sanger Institute, where we have another consortium called the Darwin Tree of Life Project. So because basically now uh, we are in a state that we can sequence very high quality genomes with almost all of the information present in this highly contiguous chromosomes. So we have these different consortiums. So one of these consortiums is the Vertebrate Genomes Project, which is uh, taxa based, right? It's to sequence all of the vertebrates. The Darwin Tree of Life Project is uh, regional based. So it's basically a consortium to sequence all life in Britain and Ireland. So it's 60,000 species. It's those like huge efforts to sequence all life on Earth, basically. So that's the Earth Biogenome Project? No, so, so this, the one that I am uh, primarily employed by, let's say paid by, is the Darwin Tree of Life Project. Oh, okay. And the Earth Biogenome Project is basically the umbrella that encompasses all of these other projects. Right, so it's like the vertebrate genomes project, the Darwin Tree of Life project. We have another project, uh, which is the African Bio uh, Genome project. We have the ERGA, which is the European Genome Consortium Atlas. So all of these consortiums are trying to basically not reinvent the wheel. Right, they are trying, they are gathering scientists together to work in, on these massive efforts to sequence or regional genomes or taxa related genomes. So this is a, a consortium of academic institutions and uh, and individual researchers uh, who all are involved in the consortium. Yeah, yeah, and we and this also comes uh, to my diversity and inclusion <laughs> work because we want to have as many people as possible involved. Because if we do want to sequence all uh, species on Earth for the benefits of science and for the benefit of everyone and, and conservation and everything, we want to have as many people as possible involved. And then of course, some big institutes uh, wrote the first grants and got the money and they have infrastructure. So the Darwin Tree of Life, for example, at the Sanger Institute has a huge infrastructure uh, of sequencing, right? And a budget to pay scientists to do it. But we are also accepting collaboration so people can send us samples and we, we do the sequencing and it's open access. Uh, and the African uh, Biogenome Project and the Earth Biogenome Project is also has a centralized, like, let's say governance. But again, we have this committee and diversity and inclusion to talk to other people that wanna reach us and want to, to you know their species to be part of our project and we want to do this as inclusive as possible 
So it is a group of institutes, research scientists, and we want to grow as much as possible. Some other things are, for example, some species are like indigenous, um, species of indigenous importance or things like this. And we don't want to just go and interfere and basically collect the species and sequence anyway without taking all of that um, background and uh, all of that uh, importance status for a specific con community out of place. So we are also having scientists and sociologists and anthropologists to like be involved on this. So then we do this as inclusively as possible and not just like gathering samples and sequencing without giving back to, to the people there, you know, to which this uh, species can be precious or important. Yeah, so I'm thinking, Marcella, so this is like building a library and there are a lot of books uh, in the library and the books has a lot of pages, <laughs> a lot of oh, yeah. text. Uh, and you're starting sort of from scratch because we, we don't really have completed a book uh, in many ways, right? So, so the goal here appears to be to complete a large library. And what do you think, what is sort of the end objective? Uh, suppose you completed this project and we have reference uh, genome of every biological entity on earth let's say <laughs> i don't know how long that's going to take but suppose we have it where will you go with it but what does how does that information be used well i mean it's it's also on the way there there is so much happening already right so first uh, so first we have so we have like a massive uh, system in place, employing a lot of people working right around the world, which is the, the first thing, I guess. And on sequencing, we learn so much. So, for example, I have developed now a method to do um, an automated assembly of mitochondrial genomes using this new technology called PAC BioHiFi that didn't exist in the past. So this is one goal, one, one point, which is developing already new software and new technology to deal with all of this data as we go along the way, because it's a massive uh, amount of data, right? The other thing, uh, which is like for me, which is like for my egoistically, let's say my, my with time, I mean, since the sequencing of the first non-modern um, organisms in the human genome, and then we started introducing non modern organisms, we have learned so much about uh, evolution and there were genomes, like some shapes of genomes that we thought would be like typical animal. And then as soon as you sequence some other taxa or some other groups, you, you understand that they are not typical at all. So one example I can give you is that there are papers, which is very interesting to read in the 90s when the human genome uh, project started, there were papers stating like, oh, we probably have 100,000 or 200,000 genes because we are so much different than other animals and we're gonna find this in the human genome. And then when we sequenced the human genome, we found uh, that we actually had the same number of genes as any other, um, as much of the other taxa in nature. And then we go like, wow, why is that? And then you start looking at the genome and you see that the way that the information is expressed is actually what makes us different. You know, there are a few specific gene families and the way that they, that information is expressed is what brings biology together. 
And, and but then one part that was really missing that we are being able to recover now is centromere and telomeres, which is this repetitive heterochromatic part of a genome that until now were not uncovered. So we also want to understand how these parts evolve and etc. And even considering now that we know a lot about the human genome, for example, because we have been understanding so much, there is still a lot that we don't understand. There is a lot of genes, which I can say it's like this uh, reviewed photographs on this uh, film. So there are some photographs we can see and some we cannot see, let's put it this way, you know? So the ones that we can see, we also don't understand the image very well yet. And this is basic. So if we consider as we do that, um, we are all connected and we all have a common descent. We are, you know, all linked. Basically, what happens is that throughout evolution, so DNA is the genetic material of all life on Earth. So basically, there are degrees of um, differences uh, in, in, um, along the, the tree of life, but we can basically also find a lot of regions of conservation between mm -hmm. this uh, among these genomes. So one of the other like important things for evolution is that we want to basically align all of the conserved regions among different taxa and then we can see what is conserved and what it's not and can relate it to phenotype for example so things that you know all of them have the uh, digestive system that is this way or or so on like specific traits and we can see the importance of specific conserved regions um for humans or for uh, the biology of other organisms. In a long story short, we still there are still blank pages in how the human genome works and how health works because we don't have this other in-between genomic uh, evidence or uh, in analysis that it would really help us understand uh, human health better. And then when we talk about human health, which would be the top of the the chain, let's say. The in-between will help us a lot to also understand peculiarities, the genetics that lead to peculiarities in specific groups, which would be able to help us to conserve them better if we would like, if we would need this information. So it's really, uh, it's really not an end goal that we are going to have all of this library and then, and then we are going to look at uh, results. The results are coming in as the project is being developed, you know, which is really exciting. And it, yeah. Yeah, it's fascinating. So uh, let me let me see if I understand this. So you mentioned that it's almost like the hardware of all the biological entities on Earth are similar. And it's really the software that makes the makes a real difference. Is that a good good way to think about it? Would you? That's very interesting. Let me think. Um, um... Almost. <laughs> so, the, the, yeah, like, because, I mean, this is almost like epigenetics, if we'd say the software, because the hardware, we also have some power differences or some storage differences, let's put it yeah. this way, okay? They're not necessarily all the same, but they are, but they would be all hardware, yeah, so, you know, oh, that's a hardware, I can see it, right, which is DNA, but then they would have peculiarities, and then their connection with the software would be yeah, that would, would be a bit different. So mm. we, yeah, maybe different languages, different ways of connecting both, and also a little bit of difference in the hardware itself. It's not only the software, but yeah, but a lot of the software is involved in what creates species and how they, they exist on Earth. Mm. And 
you mentioned epigenetics. Uh, uh, I don't know if I can take this analogy in this direction, but so there is an operating system and there's applications on top of that, right? So, so I think of this as uh, the hardware, the, as you say, the CPU, the memory, the storage, all are different in different, uh, different entities, uh, but they also have some level of operating system commonality, right? In, the, in, in other words, if the DNA is there, how the DNA uh, expresses information, how it communicates, all those things are somewhat similar, right? And so yes. I'm thinking once you put this all together, Marcella, right from the beginning to the end here, uh, have you any sort of, I'm thinking, wouldn't this allow you to design new biological entities in some ways? Oh, <laughs> well, people are already trying this. <laughs> so, it, well, it's so interesting. It's possible, yeah, I would say. It will be possible. And the same happens with people trying to de-extinct species, right? So they are basically sequencing ancient DNA and uh, basically trying to recreate them with, uh, the, with the cells from related species that are alive today, like extant species. So yeah, it's possible. There is a lot of ethics to be discussed there. <laughs> if you can bring the dinosaurs back, uh, that would be interesting. Um, but it might also, uh, would, it, would it show some sort of missing links in the sequence? In other words, we, we, we see X and we see uh, Z, Z um, but we don't see Y. But you could logically conclude Y would have existed because you know uh, X to Z transition would have gone through Y. So do you think we would find some missing links that we haven't found yet? Oh, that's very interesting point. Um, well, one would think it's not directional evolution, you know? So it's not necessarily that if you have X and Z, you would need to have Y in between. So we can, so this is something that we, we do a lot to try to see where evolution is going to take us, for example. Like in cases of viruses, we would like to be able to predict um, mutations, for example, mm. and like what, what, where mutations are more prone or not. So I think we can infer a bit, but it's not really my area, but that's very interesting uh, question. It's possible we will be able to... Huh. Yeah, mutations are quite interesting, right? I mean, it's very topical now with, <laughs> with COVID as well. And so, so are we, would we get to a point that given the status quo, we can assign some probability that the evolution will, sorry, the, the mutation will take us into more potent uh, organism or something along those lines? In other words, can we predict diseases in, in that way? Yeah, well, um... So if so, every organism operates in the in the laws of natural selection, right? So it's like the survival of the fittest. And then if you so in epidemiology, I'm not an epidemiologist, but I can I can talk a bit about this. In epidemiology, they would say if you are very potent to kill your host, then it's not very likely you would be passed on because that host will not be able to reproduce and. Um, and it would die, right? And then you would die with it. So for epidemiology, what epidemiologists usually say is that 
the disease so the perfect disease would be the one that is like very mild at least until it pa is passed along to another host hmm. so and you wouldn't kill the host very quickly right so that's why i guess we see flus and maybe the covid don't quote me on that because we st still need to it remains to be seen but it seems like it goes a bit more harmless in the to that human population and then it will be kind of exist forever so so to be like more potent is actually against the the laws of the survival of the fittest of natural selection so we wouldn't say that and not not only if it was intentional intentionally created hmm. um or we could well, let me ask you this uh is it possible that we can say something is intentionally created with this type of data that's called a very question. Um, yeah, I mean, mm, yeah, if you don't have any phylogenetic links with anything else, th there are definitely possible genetic markers that could lead you to that to that uh, post uh, hypothesis. Yes, to that yeah. possibility. So I will talk a little bit, uh, I don't know anything about this, Marcella, but um, when you talk a little bit about the, the technology, so you talk about here, iterative assembly pipeline, scaffolds generated with all three scaffolding technologies. So could you talk, so so this is, a, this is software, right? Uh, so you're using machines to essentially go through data and put that together in some way? Yeah, so it is basically, yeah, so briefly, you have like a specimen, lots of cells. Someone in the lab extracts the cells and extracts the DNA inside of the cells. So if we consider a human, we have 46 stretches of DNA inside a, a nucleus of a cell, which is the 46 chromosomes. So the DNA is not like a one linear big thing. It's 46 pieces, right? It comes from the beginning to the end for each of the chromosomes. So you extract that and then so the, the lab person is extracting that and then it tries to, so these days it tries to extract as in integer as possible as like without any harms, without any breaks on it as possible, but it's really like a mechanical thing to do that. And then they put a lot of adapters and things in like in a mix in all of the units that the cell also uses to sequence DNA, which is the DNA polymerase and all of the ATTGs to feed that polymerase to copy that the, the, the DNA, right? And this is basically captured by a machine, uh, usually captured with light or depend or a membrane um, polarization uh, uh, discontinuation, I guess, depending on which technology you're using. And then it's captured by a machine. So um, it's very interesting because so for, for the long reads, you put it one single DNA molecule within a, a little pore and you capture as each DNA is attached to the complementary sequence and, and then you, you emit a specific certain light and then you, the machine captures it. The interesting thing there is that the DNA polymerase is much faster, the, the, like life, our life is much faster in sequencing that strain of DNA than the machine is able to capture it. So then we have what we call insertions and deletions errors in the in the in the DNA sequence. So as bioinformaticians, then later on, 
need to deal with that and probabilities of that sequence being correct or wrong in the computer, right? So this is just so this is just one uh, type of technology that is in that paper. Then we have some other types of technology that we created to to create what is called interactive uh, uh, DNA sequencing because DNA the chromosomes have different properties, as I said, in the different part, portions of it. So some are heterochromatin, like lots of repeats. Some are rich in genes, so the genes are a, a little bit easier to understand. Um, and different technologies can help us get the better the information of these different parts of the chromosome, let's say. So there is another technology that basically, instead of just trying to extract this very um, high quality long DNA, it takes the information of the 3D structure of the chromatin, because in the cell, the chromatin is just like all not organized and they, it touches itself. So we kind of freeze that information in time and then do a lot of lab work and transform it into information, which is called um, uh, high C information. And then it's just basically also helps us get this long DNA reads together in a better, fashion, let's say, in related to the size of the chromosome, because it can gives us a long distance information between uh, long read sequencing. So it's a, so for to do this genomes, it's a game of having more than one type of technology sequenced. So having a very high quality sample. Okay, first of all, so having a very high quality sample. And here we can already see a very big challenge for sequencing all life on Earth. Because some organisms are very small, so it's very difficult to get good DNA from them. Some species are endangered, so you don't want to kill them or harm them, so you get DNA. So this is already a very big problem. So you, you should have very high quality DNA. Uh, you have to have these different types of technologies, and then you go to the computer, and then the bioinformaticians program different software and use different software programmed by others um, to calculate the probability of errors in the sequences. And then as I told you, we sequence and cut in different, um, with slightly uh, overlaps between them. So they're not sequenced like from one to five and then five to six, they're like one to five. And then the next sequencing is like, sequence is like from three to the 10. So they have an overlap between three and five, right? So we have this overlap. So basically we have like a big redundancy of a lot of DNA uh, sequences sequence. And then we do this overlap graphs as we call, or the bridging graphs, which we would even like break these pieces of DNA in smaller pieces. And then we just basically try to, to see which like pieces match together mm -hmm. and calculate the probability that they match together better here and not anyone anywhere else. And then we just basically, uh, the computer basically outputs a consensus from there. And then it's, it's interactive because then it takes the other type of information that we sequence on the top of this one and it corrects this one or just makes it better if it thinks it's correct. So it's just basically like lots of methods of sequencing and validation in each step to try to, to get as close as possible to the truth. Sorry, it was confusing. But it's just no, no, no. Um, so, so you mentioned uh, repeats on the DNA. Uh, so in short reads, you say 
that makes it more error prone because it, it it's basically repeat. So um, why do you think that is? I mean, it, it seems such an inefficient design. Does it does it really have to repeat? Was it an error the nature nature when it put it put together? Um, I'm just so, wondering why there's so many repeats on the DNA. So this is interesting, isn't it? Because basic so this is so people talk about the perfect design, right? Like the oh, I so perfect, and that's why maybe someone like creator created. <laughs> but to be honest, evolution is just it just happens. So the genome is actually a, basically a fight between the genes and some um, very old viruses. They are inserted in this genome. So these are the heterotransposomes. So this is why. Uh, so this is one type of repeat, which we call red heterotransposome. So in some are still active in some species genomes, which is very interesting. And they have this ability to self-copy themselves and try to go and insert themselves in another part of the genome. So this is very, uh, very, very interesting. And there is also a hypothesis that epigenetics, which is this little things that go on the top of DNA. Sometimes they just kind of like make the DNA not move. They were evolved. To, uh, to actually stop these heterotransposomes from jumping everywhere, everywhere around. So it's really, um, it's really interesting, you know? So this, and then evolution is just like in the middle of this thing. And then the thing that is most like, it doesn't spend a lot of energy. We can copy this and this still works. So we just keep copying it. So they exist there. We also find that heterotransposomes are the source of innovation, which is really nice because sometimes they, put themselves in the middle of a gene, they start expressing something else, and you can even create a new trait that eventually would create a new species. And some repetition is just some uh, whole genome duplication events, again, because life is just random. So yeah. there was a time there was a whole genome duplication for vertebrates, and then it wasn't very uh, costly to keep copying this, and that exists. And actually, when you have that extra copy, then you can, again, put pressure on it, like different environmental variables would put pressure on that DNA and it could even create something else. So it's really like a balance of randomness with um, with pressure that creates new species and just it's just like a mess all around. <laughs> mm. it's, it's not a perfect so, design. Yeah, so that's what I was wondering, Marcella. So uh, from a data perspective, um, one could argue that it's completely random, but I also wondered if there are preferences. Um, you know, uh, so if you take data, um, you know, the, the initial conditions, do you think there, there are some preferences of how it evolves? It's not completely stochastic. There is it sort of guided <laughs> stochastic. Uh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's not completely deterministic guided, but it for sure, biochemical and specific bonds and chemical bonds would drive uh, possibilities and probabilities more to one side than the other, yes. And so would that mean that some configurations are not possible? If you, if you have, you know, preferential heuristics driving evolution, some, com some combinations may not exist, right? Well, I mean, they, so we don't know how many species there were. We only know, I mean, we know some existed, right? But we only know the ones that prevailed. So it's possible they wouldn't be optimal, let's put it this way. 
Mm. And then they wouldn't survive or, you know, if they would create something. And we also have mutations that cause harm, right? So if you, because also the DNA needs to be copied first every day to produce new cells because we lose cells and then we need to uh, reju rejuvenate our cells. So DNA is always copied again. And then the, you know this, if we copy one thing many times, we can cause errors. And that's also what causes us to, like, as we age, it causes mutations that causes uh, to, to get disease and et cetera. And we also have uh, errors when we copy to produce uh, gametic cells, right? Cells that are going to go and produce offspring and everything. So, and, and yeah, so if we do interfere with a specific gene, which, which function is very tight and needs to be coded a certain way, then it will be harmful and then we will not like produce offspring or we won't be able to, that won't be viable. So that for sure exists, yeah. I had another guest on Marcella a few episodes ago and he argues that it's not random mutation and natural selection. He argues it's artificial selection. It is basically the DNA seeking to go to a, a more optimum condition given the, given the environment. Um, and, and so, I mean, it, it's obviously up for debate, but that's a different way of thinking about it, I think. But was he talking about a specific case or? No, in general. Um, and so, you know, my understanding is the, the commonly accepted idea is that you have all sorts of random mutations happening and the, and the beneficial one will get selected. And those are the ones that we see over time. Uh, he argues that it is the organism itself artificially changing to, um, to counteract the environmental conditions. So it's not really random, he argues. That's very strange because I don't think that the DNA seeks anything. <laughs> so I would need to, you know, um, have a read on what he's, he's mentioning. So in the case of humans, for sure, um, we have culture, right? So culture makes us act against what would be natural, let's say, in nature in general, right? So we would, so I guess, like, so there is like a fossilized um, bone of a human femur that was healed, like a, now I don't know, but one of the first human communities that existed. And then they basically found a sign of humanity in there because then someone would need to have fed that person carry that person and help that person to survive because like other species would just probably left that person behind and then keep going and keep hunting and gathering because they cannot afford to have the person together with them right so what i'm trying to say is that humans basically do things against their own will in a way uh yeah. we like we put ourselves in fire for like world peace and things like this right so this is also why um when people say that they they committed like harassment against women based on their instincts, it's pure bullshit because we are much more um, culturate animals than we are um, instinct animals. So if he was referring to that, to humans, maybe he has some point because the way that we live now, it changes our life so much that we are changing the path of natural selection. We are not just going to the specific, because we have antibiotics, we live much older, we have kids older. So we introduce all of this series of differences that can you know, have an impact on how our species are gonna evolve. But for other, other life, I would say natural selection is the, is the main, main source of, main force of uh, evolution, yeah. 
Yeah, so I want to finish up with, uh, I know that you um, you do a lot of work in this area. So you, you have a blog entry, scientific excellence in sequencing all life on Earth depends on justice, equity, diversity, and inclusion. Um, so you want to talk a bit about that? Um, so, uh, so you say life program at the Welcome Sanger Institute, genomes, uh, vertebrate genomes project. We talked about that global invertebrate genomes, uh, Geno genomics alliance the Earth Biogenome Project, you talked about all of that, united over 5,000 unique attendees. So this is a conference that happened? Yeah, so this is there is a conference called Biodiversity Genomics. We will have that again in October this year. It's free and it's online. And we intend to have it online forever because I guess, I mean, it, it's not the most exciting, but I, I guess it's the most including inclusive because we can have students and people from all around the world. And this year we are going to have it in five different time zones. So, uh, so and then people from all the world can join and then we will have the sessions recorded so they can post questions even in advance if they want to watch a, a session from another uh, time zone. So I can send you details when we have it, but we are going to open for, open it for registration like in one or two weeks very soon, yeah. If you send me the link, Marcella, I can put that on the, or when I publish this, I can put that link in there so people can. Okay, that would be great. Okay, I will do that. Excellent. Yeah, this has been great. <laughs> Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah, no, I think, yeah. So just to, just to say about the diversity and inclusion. So we have this committee on the Earth Biogenome Project called JEDI. Everyone likes that <laughs> acronym, which is Justice, Equity, Diversity and Inclusion. Uh, especially for biodiversity genomics, which is our field in science. And, you know, of course, it would include everything that we are very used to discuss about diversity and inclusion, which is gender diversity, um, different human uh, group diversity, and etc. But we also want to, as we want to sequence our life on Earth, there is a key issue, which is basically try to avoid neocolonialism of Mm -hmm. sequencing life from topical countries without acknowledging the scientists there or just basically going collecting all of the biodiversity or the di di uh, sequencing uh, species information sorry bring into rich countries and sequencing here and not explaining anything to anyone right so when we do things inclusively it takes much longer and it's much harder we have discussions, we have conversations because people have different points of view, but that's exactly where we want to be and we want to go. So we don't want to leave anyone behind. So this idea is to basically sequence all life on earth uh, with people involved and like respecting regional, cultural differences and how they want to deal with their data and involving the scientists on this. So also trying to promote as much as possible training and exchange between scientists in the global south and in the global north. So it is a very, very big challenge. So as Earth Biogenome Jedi Committee, because we try to address all these challenges, we have uh, 16 committee members from all around the world. So we discuss weekly, um, monthly, we are publishing a first paper now on the issues on Jedi in biodiversity genomics. And we are open to hear from, so anyone that is really interested in having all life on Earth sequence and wants to participate and thinks that there is a Jedi issue to be discussed or is uncomfortable with some, with some way that the projects are doing things, they can always come and talk to us because we are here to ensure that no one is left behind. And the data ultimately will be public domain, right? The data Totally public, yeah. 
And so anybody could use it. Uh, there could be a lot of uses for it, I would imagine, but that, that also brings some privacy concerns potentially, right? Yeah, so this is the thing. So especially for a specific species from specific communities, if they don't want to, you know, how they would, so yeah, they want to open their data. So then it needs to be discussed with specific groups on how they want to deal with that data. If they want to have the data open on request or, or you know, all of this. So this is exactly what we want to ensure. Our policies that we would like to have as open as possible because we, we, we believe the science should be open, but at the same time, without, without disrespecting specific ancient knowledge and privacy concerns that people have. So we would always have groups to discuss this without pub, uh, publishing anything or sequencing anything. Excellent, yeah, so this is in October. So I'll uh, I'll put a link. Uh, if you send me the link, I'll put that on the program. And uh, yeah, good luck with it. It seems like a really interesting, really interesting project. Yeah, it is, it is. Thank you so much. It's, uh, it's a lot of work, but yeah, <laughs> it's challenging. Excellent. Um, um, is there, I guess the the the, the umbrella uh, you you mentioned that's the Earth Biogenome Project, right? The EBP, yes. and under EBP you have different wings of um, genome sequencing going on, right? For different classes of of um, biological entities. Um, is if you were to expand it, is there scope for expansion to in, in, in are you missing anything in the in the current uh, current objective? Uh, yeah, I mean, we we heard now that India has its own biogenome project, which is really nice. We try to get Asia, which is very large, involved as much as we can. So we do, and we also miss lots of uh, Latin America. So we have uh, Colombia. I am Brazilian, right? So I have a lot of um, collaborators in Brazil, but then the Amazon is also a part that is like underfunded for science. And then we know we, there are very good groups there and professors, but they lack funding. So we try to collaborate with them as much as possible. So there is a lot still to be, to be built. And, you know, if people are out there thinking about starting consorts or talking to us to see how they would do this. We, it's, there is a lot still missing for sure. Hmm. I would imagine life sciences companies are also quite interested in this, right? Um, um, I don't know if Glass, GlaxoSmithKline is part of Welcome to anymore, but um, don't won't they have a interest in this type of data? Yeah, yeah, for sure. And and then the question is the economics. If, if the data actually becomes useful economically, then who holds the right? And and all of those questions need to be answered at some point. Yeah, but then it's uh, so it's a, it would be a technology built up on the top of the genome, right? So the genome is public, and the knowledge. I mean, we try, we will try to do all the science with the genomes, but yeah, what comes after it, I guess, will be as long as it's, so. Since the human genome, also we discussed that we don't patent any of uh, genetic information for anything, right? Mm -hmm. So it's only things that come after it. I would say, yeah. Yeah. What What is the uh... Uh, just one last question. So what's the status of the genome patenting? Uh, I know that there were some conflicts that, you know, people rushed to patent some aspects of human genome and then that was challenged. Uh, do you know where, where it stands now from a patenting perspective? 
Yeah, no, there is no patenting of patenting of uh, human genome information. Just you can only you can you need to build up a technology on the top of it. Let's say you use a gene to insert in a specific like liver cell, then you need to have it all changed and it's a specific like a probe which does all of these things that goes into the, the liver and then goes in. But the sequence itself is free, so anyone would be able to look at it. So it's completely free. Excellent. Yeah. Um, great project. Thanks for spending time uh, with me, Marcella. Of course. Thank you for having me. It was it was lovely Absolutely. to be here. Thank you. Okay. This is a Scientific Sense podcast providing unscripted conversations with leading academics and researchers on a variety of topics. If you'd like to sponsor this podcast, please reach out to info at scientificsense.com.